1: Tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode thirty-two for August of twenty eighteen. My name is Mike,
2: and I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about our favorite anti-heroes. You know, those protagonists we love despite their questionable morals. And our show topics include the start of the fourth season of Killjoys and the new Stephen King anthology series on Hulu Castle Rock.
1: Right. And we are excited to also have an interview from Killjoys and Luke McFarlane, who plays Davin Jacoby, will be joining us for a discussion. And since Dave is also discussing that show, it will really only just be what, Dave, the first two episodes of that one? Yes, the first two. And Luke will be able to supplement that content for us. So that'll be nice. But there, of course, will be spoilers for episodes that have aired. Although, because we're introducing Castle Rock, I am going to try and keep these spoilers for the most recent episode separate. So I'll give you a separate warning when we get to uh, episode four of Castle Rock so that you can fast forward if you want to. But we're really only going to be talking about the first three episodes that were dropped all at once on July 25th. So, if you need to avoid spoilers or you just want to jump around to pick your favorite topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions Best Anti Heroes,
0: 155.
1: Killjoys,
0: 19.22.
1: Castle Rock,
0: 38.13.
2: Killjoys Interview,
0: 56.42.
1: And of course, our discussion topic is definitely a fun one. I had a lot of fun doing the research for this one. It's our best anti-heroes discussion and we have a couple from shows that we like to reference quite a bit but we also have some new ones that we haven't really delved into much so this should be an interesting discussion
2: yeah you know mike when we first decided to do this topic i thought it was going to be more difficult to come up with six than it actually was and for a number of these shows there's more than one character that would qualify as an anti-hero in that particular show so I'm going to go ahead and start us off with one of those shows, and it's The 100, which is still one of my favorite shows, despite the fact that just when you think it can't get any darker, it gets darker.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I haven't been staying up with that show. Has it gotten pretty dark recently?
2: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And and it's just varying levels of darkness. And, And, you know, not to go off topic too much. At some point, you need a little bit of light. It's At some point, the good guys have to get a victory. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to go with Octavia Blake, played by Marie Avgaropoulos. And her character has been forced to become someone she probably never really even knew existed in order for her people to survive six years in the underground bunker after the explosion. And And to be honest, they were trapped. They couldn't get out. And for her it's almost reasonable to accept the fact that killing has become an afterthought for her as the leader. She would certainly argue it's a necessary evil, but as we go on in the series and we see more and more of her character, we have to wonder whether blood Raina has perhaps just gone off the deep end.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely true. And we'll notice this as we go through this discussion that a lot of these characters are off the rails because of survival reasons. They'll do anything to protect the people they're in charge of.
2: Now, Mike, you say anything. And when we finally learn the truth to one crew's survival, Octavia's decisions become even more powerful. She forces her people to resort to cannibalism in order that they survive, eat or die. And she ends up murdering some of her own people, to break the will of the others who are reticent, as you might understand, to eat human flesh. But she also understands, from a medical perspective, if they don't do this, they're going to die.
1: Yeah, that's terrible.
2: <laughs> I understand that. And you know, the other character I considered, Clark Griffin, who comes across certainly in a more positive light. What well, we ask ourselves is, what Octavia is doing, and he different than what Clark did at Mount weather. And I don't think it is.
1: Yeah. And those tough decisions sometimes have different levels within the group. And in fact, my first one that I'll go into has that same problem where the show could have given me two different choices. And in this case, mine is the walking dead where you could argue that Rick Grimes is the hero played by Andrew Lincoln, but also, some people, must well wouldn't uh, Daryl qualify as the antihero? Well, yes, but Rick is in a different way because he goes up and down where he's being very moralistic, but then actually going down very dark paths. And the hypocrisy is what really gets me the most with Rick, because he starts out in The Walking Dead as a genuine hero. He's, of course, the ex-cop who wakes up from a coma and finds himself in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. And he makes those tough choices initially, just as the folks in The 100 did, that it's required for survival. And in season three, there was a section of the story where it was at a prison and he had to ruthlessly kill the prisoner's leader and then force others who wanted to join the group to lock another of their number in a courtyard where there's a bunch of walkers mobbing them sort of to prove their worth to join Rick Grimes's group of survivors. So he's not going to trust anybody to become part of the group unless they show their worth. And, of course, that definitely has some moral questionability to it.
2: Yeah, and Octavia has
1: something similar
2: in her uh, situation. So,
1: yeah. The things they have to do to sort of uh, make people who themselves might be morally questionable— Respect them, I think is what it comes down to. And Rick does go full anti-hero in season five when he goes to Alexandria where he's subjecting himself to another leader in Deanna who basically is in denial about the world outside and he doesn't like that. And in a sense, you have to wonder, well, is he addicted to the battle and doesn't want to settle down into a, a comfortable life or is he right that Deanna is ignoring the problem and he's eventually willing to you know, take out perceived threats before they even occur. And I mentioned the hypocrisy of that because he often ends up acting exactly like the aggressively protective antagonists that he took out in earlier seasons, like Shane in the earlier seasons, or even the governor, which was a great villain early on. So those folks were basically doing the same thing he was. And then he takes on those traits that he so despises, but he has to. And and that's the thing. He's still the hero. He's still the protagonist. It's just that he's doing morally questionable things to keep to his moral code of protecting at all costs.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you wonder that if these shows get to a point in the overall story arc that once they've surmounted whatever their problem is zombies in The Walking Dead's case, you know, will these characters be able to live with themselves for what they've done?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So, Well, I think a natural follow-up for my next character is from the show Van Helsing and the character Vanessa Helsing, played by Kelly Overton. And we did an interview with her, right? We sure did. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure where it is in the uh, catalog, but I'm sure you can search it on Den of Geek. But just like Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead, she wakes up from a coma and finds herself in the middle of a vampire apocalypse. <laughs> and, right. and in the show Van Helsing, the vampires act very much like zombies that they certainly have those characteristics but she's the classic reluctant hero but in this case it goes way beyond that because it is revealed early on that she is mankind's savior from this vampire apocalypse and interestingly she can either bite or be bitten by a vampire and the effect is the same that it turns the vampire back to the human state but She doesn't care about any of that. She wants to be left alone so that she can find her missing daughter. And through much of the first season, that's what the search is all about. Eventually, she finds her daughter. And, of course, when she finds her, her daughter's already been turned to a vampire. But Vanessa, ruthless, as I said, has little to no interest in those around her, grudgingly allows them to tag along. But at this point, now that her daughter is dead... And she would argue that it was at her own hands. She really has, I don't want to say no direction, but she's just really grasping at straws. The appearance of a sister she didn't know she had maybe has softened her a little bit, but she's still that angry woman who's thrust into a role that she doesn't want to have anything to do with. She understands it at this point, and it's certainly going to be interesting to see moving forward into this next season how everything is handled with her, but uh, she's a great character.
1: Yeah, I have the feeling it sounds like she's the type that might start to broaden her view beyond her personal mission and become more of a hero and less of an anti-hero as time goes by.
2: Yeah, and I think the introduction of her sister will perhaps facilitate
1: that. But then, of course, there are people who are anti-heroes from the very start and end up that way as well. And I have to go into the vault for this one. Stargate Universe, a great character played by Robert Carlyle, Dr. Nicholas Rush, who really sets himself up to be kind of the crew member that everyone loves to hate, even though he's in a leadership position Because he's this ultimate Machiavellian hero who believes himself to be the only one who knows what's best for the group to survive. And in fact, his drive to know more about the Stargate is what makes him choose to put in that ninth Chevron and take the crew to the derelict ship Destiny rather than back to Earth. And I think that's really at the core of his his character is that he wants to protect everyone, but he also has this thirst for knowledge that kind of subsumes that larger mission. And you never know if he's exercising self-preservation because he is selfish in his desire to continue his own personal mission or whether he genuinely is one of these same kind of characters like Rick Grimes, who will do anything to protect the larger group. It's, it's very difficult to tell if he's selfish or selfless.
2: And as you know, I came to Stargate Universe very late, uh, really about two years ago. And my experience with Robert Carlyle was from Once Upon a Time. And his character's not totally different. Yeah. <laughs> but Dr. Rush, it's as you said, he really does. And you know what? He may be right. No better than everybody else. It's just that he doesn't have the social graces sometimes to get his points across.
1: And he's not very honest. I mean, he pretends like Jack O'Neill has appointed him ahead of the crew and it's just not true. It's just that it would facilitate his desire to just brush aside all the competitors who, who are keeping him from doing what he wants to do. And he's constantly urging the personal sacrifice of others. Like when young and Scott return with some ice uh, for, I think they're short on water and Scott is left in a crevasse. And he just tells Young, leave him behind, you know, and he's not going to do that. And like I said, ironically, he's the one that caused their predicament in the first place, uh, having taken them to the derelict ship. So you have to wonder if he's in pursuit of knowledge above all else. And the whole survival of the of the crew is just a smokescreen. Yeah. Not to mention the
2: secret control room he finds and doesn't let anybody know.
1: Yeah. He just wants it for himself. So a great character because he's alternately villain and anti-hero.
2: Well, my third character's show was on one of the villainous networks, Fox, and <laughs> they canceled this relatively popular show. It's now going to turn up on Netflix. And I'm talking about Lucifer and the character Lucifer Morningstar, played by Tom Ellis.
1: Well, interesting, because wouldn't the devil automatically be a villain? I guess I, not.
2: I, you would think so. <laughs> I mean as you said he's the devil with a capital d what else do you need to know in terms of anti-heroes but what we find out in the pilot episode is that he's sick of dear old dad's manipulations and interference so he says you know the hell with it i'm abandoning (laughs) hell takes up residence in la opens a posh nightclub and begins working side by side with an attractive female detective solving crimes. And of course, the show gets a lot more complex than that. But Lucifer's life is one of decadence, and he's one of those anti-heroes. And I guess you could argue that to a certain extent, most of them end up in this situation. But they're faced with a moral dilemma. A decision has to be made. They insist on generally doing what feels good, but in the end, Lucifer, of course, grudgingly does the right thing. And I guess there's a lot of people out there, particularly from hardcore religious groups that don't like the way the devil is being portrayed in this show. It is a dark show. Lucifer is a dark character, but not in the way you might expect if you don't watch the show.
1: Yeah. You wouldn't think that Lucifer would ever do the right thing even begrudgingly <laughs> but yeah it's interesting that you chose that as your third one because my third character also is that same style of anti-hero just like Octavia and Rick Grimes kind of go together my character Takeshi Kovach from Altered Carbon played by Joel Kinnaman is very similar to Lucifer in that he just wants to do what feels good for him and then ends up begrudgingly doing the right thing. And I love that about his evolution in season one of Altered Carbon. By the way, he's being played by Anthony Mackey in season two, having been re-sleeved. So that's one of the great aspects of that show, kind of like Doctor Who, where you can bring in new actors if you want to. But he becomes the anti-hero Early in life, even as a kid, because he kills his father to protect his sister, Ray, from abuse. And that kind of carries through into his character, some of his motivations. So even though he doesn't buy into the societal view of these classist uh, elitists re-sleeving themselves into new bodies, despite all moral objections, whether religious or otherwise, from the common people, he acts as their enforcer in the SeaTac. But then as soon as he finds that his sister has not been protected, as the powers that be insisted that they would, but instead has been uh, enslaved by the Yakuza, he immediately obliterates his colleagues, as does she, no matter the cost. And so you can see that his core motivation is protection of his sister. So even when he became one of the good guys, the, the envoys under Qualcrest Falconer, it was still about really protecting his sister. I think as the time goes by and and his investigation into the death of Lawrence Bancroft which is the modern version of what he's up to he still pretends to be that way in his mind but you can see as he's recruiting his various assets to help him in his mission he insists that they're merely tools to accomplish his objective. But do we really believe that? I mean you can sort of tell that he is kind of bonding with those around him. So that's why I feel like he's still a good protagonist anti-hero because it's all kind of just for show his selfishness. He really is deep down a good guy. It's just that he's loyal to a person who has earned his loyalty. But then as soon as they break that trust, they're pretty much toast. (laughs) He's going to take them out and you kind of have to love that about him, even though it's kind of harsh in its execution.
2: Yeah, I'm still having a hard time getting over the fact that we're not going to have Joel Kinnaman anymore.
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough, but if anyone's going to do it, I mean Anthony Mackie coming from the Avengers world, I'm sure he's going to be able to fill those shoes, but we'll see. I'm I'm, I'm excited by that one.
2: Okay. And I'm sure some of you are out there saying, "Hey, what about Jessica Jones? Isn't yeah. she the quintessential <laughs>
1: anti-hero?" Yeah, she is. We just couldn't fit them all in. <laughs>
2: Well, you came up with Pope from Falling Skies. I'd forgotten about him.
1: Yeah, that was one that I was struggling whether or not I wanted to put on there as well. And you mentioned Clark also getting an honorable mention from the hundreds. So yeah, there's plenty of ones that we could have chosen. And on the Facebook group, we had my brother Casey chiming in with Kovach from Altered Carbon. That was his choice. Christopher Bork said Spike evolved into one toward the end of Buffy's run. He also mentioned Lucifer as you did. He also brought up Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. That's a good possibility as well. A lot of people that have questionable morals in Game of Thrones, even the supposed good guys. Linda chimed in with that pesky Avon again from Blake's seven and also mentioned our good friend, Matthew Kellogg from Continuum. I think that's a good choice, Linda. And she also brought up Ben Linus from lost, which I think is a, another great choice. So thanks to those of you who uh, chimed in on the Facebook group with your choices.
2: Yeah, but you know what Linda's doing here, right? What? With with Blake 7. I, I mean, she keeps throwing them out there at <laughs> us and at some point we're both going to find the time to watch it, <laughs> to watch it. So, all right. Well, let's talk about our first show, which is Killjoys, and Killjoys like I don't want to say a lot of shows in sci-fi, but I believe 12 Monkeys was in this category, but they received a two season renewal so that they know they have two seasons of 10 episodes each to tell their story, and then that's that. And as a showrunner, it really makes things a lot easier.
1: Yeah, even more easy than just saying six and done, like they did with Continuum, which I th- felt was a little rushed towards the end. Two seasons and being able to finish your story is like a dream for the writer's room, I would think.
2: Uh, I would think as well. So we're going to talk about episodes 401 and 402 of Killjoys. And as I said, there, there will be a season five. We, we don't know yet when they're going to air it, whether they're going to wait a few weeks, a few months, a whole year. But what do we know coming out of season three? Well, first off, we learn that Anila is Klein's daughter, and during her imprisonment, she gave birth, and I'm making air quotes, <laughs> to Dutch through the Green Plasma's special properties. Now, if you watch the show, you know what I'm talking about. But we always were under the assumption that Klein had raised Dutch as his daughter, which, of course, he did. And we were never quite sure, well, is she really his daughter? Or, But no, we learned that Anila, who, of
1: course, is an identical twin – Or basically a clone, you might say. Yeah. She pulled Dutch out as a memory of her own self.
2: Right. Uh, But beyond that, it's really unexplained (laughs) how she did it. Yeah. And and certainly that's one of the great mysteries that's ongoing in Killjoys. Now, we know the war against the Holland takes a turn for the worse until Johnny and Davin board Anila's ship with the plan to take her out. But, uh, of course, they get in there. They're ready to go. And what do they witness but Dutch and Anila voluntarily submerging themselves in the green plasma pool to go after the enigmatic the lady who apparently is trying to get out according to delcea so with killjoys at this moment I mean there's a lot of hard science going on there's certainly it's it's heavily space fiction but they've introduced this almost Supernatural mystical quality with the green plasma and the lady, and we really don 't know what 's going on there,
1: especially since we were already pretty horrified by the prospect of what the hullen was up to, and then for us to discover that they 're not even the most dangerous part of this whole thing, kind of really ups the ante
2: yeah now in anila 's absence, Dutch and Johnny convinced Elcea to enter the hive mind and call off the Hullen attack, which momentarily stops the war. Now, Delcea Kendry, very pregnant, close to giving birth, she learns that Davin is the father of her child, and of course, there are a number of really funny scenes where he, where he's like, "Did we? No. Oh, good, good. You know, because they they really dislike each other a lot. How do you feel about apostrophes? Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's one of the great lines in the series, but. Of course, what has happened is Anila has essentially engineered this pregnancy using Davin's DNA. And and again, we don't know exactly how she does it, but whatever, according to her, it worked. And Saya apparently is merely carrying the child. And certainly one of the questions that evolves at the end of season three and and carries into season four is is whether or not Davin is really interested in being in this child's life. Of course, that's if Anila doesn't take the child for herself. So,
1: so we don't know. And I would urge people to stay tuned because Luke McFarlane is going to answer that question in the interview. Okay. (laughs) Uh,
2: And then of course, Zeph and Pip kiss when the war dies down. And (laughs) one of the things I love about Killjoys is that, you know, there are relationships in the show, but, they, you know, they don't throw it in your face. It, oh, it's no. in the yeah. background. and A very soft touch. Yes, it is important, but it doesn't overwhelm you. So, I agree. Now, season four, as I said, episodes 401 and 402, you know, in a sense, you could almost call them bottle episodes because 401 focuses on Dutch, who's still in the green, as far as we know, with Anila and her struggle to fight the lady through a flashback to the early days of her relationship with Johnny. While episode 402 moves to the rest of the team, which is still separated from each other as they maneuver to first regroup and then find Johnny, Davin, and Delcea. So I like the way they did it. And again, I think it's part and parcel with knowing that we've got 20 episodes to tell our story. We can afford to do it this way. We can take our time. And by that, I don't mean that the pace is slow because it's anything, but
1: well, and especially since they don't waste time with Davin and Delcea and Johnny floating around in that elevator that got separated in the season finale last season, they just get right to the part where they're crash landed on a planet and figuring out what to do next. So I like that. They kind of just got right to it that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and we've got several active threads. Dutch and Anila, of course, trying to bring down the lady. Johnny, who's now at least partially Holland, and we'll talk about that in a minute, rapidly losing touch with his humanity. Delsea Kendry, close to delivery of the baby that Anila engineered using Davin's DNA. And then, of course, still looming in the background. You know, is there going to be a war with the Holland or is this baby, which by all accounts is a human Hull and hybrid. Is that going to be the bridge to bringing the two together? I mean, well, especially
1: remember that Davin has those special rejection of the green type abilities that might come into play. I'm not sure, but yeah, all kinds of possibilities. It's always that way. Whenever a chosen one child is introduced into the plot line, right? Yeah. So, well,
2: why don't we start talking a little bit about Dutch and Anila played by Hannah, John common. And as I said, they're still in the plasma pool, presumably doing battle with the lady who is this entity, really very little concrete is known other than she's apparently trying to get out.
1: Yeah, who knows? It's like it's almost as though she realizes that because of what Anila did in bringing Dutch out of the green, she realizes that she can also escape the green like this is her realm, but she wants to break out of it into our world. But still, there's a massive amount of mystery as to why she would want that, how she got in there, how she's confined in there or what she even is. Right. And
2: one of the other things we have to consider is that Klein is dead in real life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So we see Anila, who's in the green, and she converses with Klein. He offers advice as he is wont to do. But it's apparent that Dutch has been wounded by the lady who tells her that only she and Johnny can save each other. And again, it's not clear what he means. And he's going to tell his story about the warrior and the princess. And of course, it refers to Johnny and Dutch. But the story about how they not meet, because you know we know he was trying to steal her ship. She had just murdered her husband on their wedding day, and she was trying to escape... But we pick up, and this story is a little bit after that, and they're tracking an assassin to a ten-year retreat on Crash, and this comes after learning that Dutch cut a deal for Johnny's release should they succeed in preventing this hit, because you know they're trying to survive and they get caught, and I won't go into all those details, but you know right away this selfless behavior on her part to save his life at the risk of her own, certainly tells us a lot about Dutch and who she is and certainly we've seen it countless times during the course of the first 3 season but it certainly speaks to her confidence familiarity in the milieu of not only the ultra wealthy but she was brought up by Klein as an assassin so you know how better to find an assassin than call on an assassin to do it
1: well I also like that Johnny doesn't know that at this point in the flashback not only has he not come up with the nickname of dutch he also doesn't realize that she's anything but a princess and keeps thinking where did you learn those moves
2: (laughs) well yeah and that's a great line when she tells him to stop calling her princess and then eventually he says all right yeah how about duchess and then of course we (laughs) know what happens next even though he doesn't say it but The two of them are posing as a married couple at this retreat, and the combative exchanges that they go through leads to the line, you are the worst wife ever, he tells her, (laughs) and he means it when he says it. But like all of these apprehensive couples at the retreat, because what they're trying to do is decide whether or not they want to sign up for another 10-year agreement to be married. And the parallel of whether Johnny and Dutch are going to remain together – as partners is certainly a question that they wrestle with. Now, you know we've mentioned Johnny Jacoby, played by Aaron Ashmore, and you know it, it's really fascinating in this flashback to see John and Dutch reinvent themselves as rack agents because really that's all we've ever known them as. But to see the genesis of how they became rack agents, which was really just a chance encounter with somebody that had the vision to see beyond the surface. And when we find out that is in fact Turin, oh my gosh, that's, that's just so awesome.
1: Yeah. It kind of explains a lot as to why he cut them so much slack in the scenes we had seen in earlier seasons.
2: But going back to Klein's story, when he tells her to find John Jacoby, he's your true North, your only way home. And I remember when I was reviewing this episode, Like, all right, that's a little corny, maybe a bit hackneyed, but, (laughs) but, you know, there is something about the finding the strength among her memories that might be the key to preventing the lady from breaking Dutch. And that's, that's kind of what's happening
1: here. We're worried. Well, but is it that's the, I'm actually thinking that he's not actually helping her overcome anything, but is rather planting a trap for the lady in telling this story. I'm not sure exactly how, but these little asides that he has with Anila seems to indicate that what he's doing is he's kind of weaving a web that's not really protecting her because he pretty much knows that the lady's going to get her. She's pretty much doomed. But if he plants this little tracking device, if you will, or some kind of weapon in whatever form that it will take with this story, then he has a chance to sort of use Dutch as a way to get at the lady. That's the way I read it.
2: Okay. I like that. Uh, So you, you feel like the lady is listening in, if you will, on the story.
1: Oh, that would be cool. That's not exactly what I meant, but I like that idea too.
2: (laughs) Well, one of the things that, that happens with John and, and it, arguably is the most important thing that happens in season 4 to this point is that he's still suffering the after effects of his throwdown with Anil at the end of season 3 and in true jacoby fashion it's uh ah, it's just you know it's just a flesh wound and and he's still going into battle but now he's reached a point where he literally is near death after pushing himself beyond the limit and this is when you mentioned. That, you know, they're on the elevator. Uh, Lucy cuts the tie. They crash on the unknown planet and, and you know, things start happening rather quickly. And, and of course, they realize we need to get him medical attention. And push comes to shove. Saya says, uh, you know, you need to let me essentially make him Holland or he's going to die.
1: Yeah. And I love how they are able to use the same little it's almost like a compact, uh, one of those uh, makeup mirror things that that women carry around with them, except instead it has a small amount of the green liquid in it that she used in the end of season three to call off her troops. She just dips her fingers into it to communicate with them, call off the troops, and th- that's what it's used for. But here it's a s- small enough amount that it seems to not be really the the full infusion that johnny would need to become holland in a safe manner you know
2: well right and she mentions the fact that she doesn't really have enough and you know she does mention that there is going to be a craving and certainly that's what we see in john is that now he is you know as you allude at least partially holland but he craves more and that really becomes his his Focus. But the other thing is that Delcea mentions the idea of neuro purging, which is the removal of all emotional bonds as a consequence of this transformation. And I think we know where this is headed is that he's going to lose the emotional connection he has with Dutch. And, and certainly, since he's with his brother, we wonder whether he's losing it with Davin as well. And it's really hard to tell because the two of them have such a unique situation anyway. I mean, there's this combative nature that the two brothers have, but you know, it, we wonder whether it's more
1: than that. And also it's very key to the episode that because he's emotionally deta- detached, he figures out the little conspiracy that's going on on this prison planet that they've crash landed on. So maybe the non Holland version of Johnny wouldn't have figured that out with his calm and cool and collected uh, emotionless state
2: okay now a couple of characters that i want to bring up real quickly the addition of kelly mccormick to the cast last season as zeph is just one of the greatest decisions the showrunners could have made because her character has just been outstanding i mean we've watched as zeph has transformed from a meek subdued Jacoby fangirl into this bold conversation confident member of the team and in this episode it's her willingness to formulate and put into motion a complex plan to save the boys that really sends her to the next level and i love the scene in which turin questions her and she just says please stop underestimating me and while she doesn't shout it she doesn't scream it you you can just feel the frustration because she's been treated like this probably her whole life and they all like put their hands up okay uh, we'll do what you say and and that moment really solidifies her status in the group and i guess what really gets me about this whole story arc of her putting into motion this plan standing up for herself i think zef more than anybody needs to be part of team awesome force (laughs)
1: yeah i love that
2: and I really think it would be I I just I don't even want to think that she's going to leave the show. So I I don't even want to say that. So (laughs) stop me now. Now, uh, The character that has really almost become her sidekick played by Atticus Mitchell. and, And that is, of course, Pip, who's one of these characters that I really couldn't determine how much and if I liked his character. But every scene he's in. I leave the scene saying that was pretty good. He, he, <laughs> yeah. He's pretty funny. And he's got this unique skill set. Initially, he's the guy that can get whatever you need. But along the way, he's got some pretty good computer hacking skills. And you know, when he hacks into the necropolis system, that's pretty hardcore. That was not easy to do. So yeah. and then lastly, Pre, who is certainly one of my favorite characters. He is the bartender, you know, that we've seen from the beginning. And he survives the first phase of the war with the Hullen, And he, he seems to get more time in the field
1: now. And I guess you might argue, well, the town got blown up. Yeah, they wanted to keep Pre, but they couldn't keep in the, him in the bar. So they made him a rack agent. Basically. Right. <laughs> so,
2: you know, most of his witty lines revolve around sexual innuendo. And, you know, on, on the one hand, it would be nice to not lock him in into being this one trick pony yeah yeah but uh nonetheless his presence in any scene brightens things up and his relationship with garrett is still in play although i forget what happened to him he's yeah i don't think he's dead but uh, no he was
1: there he was there
2: but uh, he's a great character as well and uh you know it's just really a great show i i can't speak highly enough about it
1: yeah and i'm actually very grateful that we have the interview with with Luke McFarlane because it will actually flesh out some of the things that you mentioned here in this, in this uh, discussion. And he gave a really good bit of teasing as to where things are headed specifically with Davin, but also just speculating on the show at large as it, as it wraps up its uh, series over the next two seasons. So great show.
2: Now, Mike, before you get started, I wasn't sure how far I was going to get, but I did get to see the first three episodes of castle rock.
1: Oh, Good. Yeah, and the the way we're going to do this, because of Hulu doing the formula that I think all streaming services should use, they took Castle Rock and dropped three episodes on July 25th, and then the fourth episode just aired August 1st, and that's yesterday with regard to when we're recording this. So the fourth episode just aired. So the way I'm going to do this is because a lot of people listening to this, might not have seen episode four and and that's including you, Dave, I'm going to just talk about the first three episodes of the premise and, and what's going on with the show and our opinions of it. And then we're just going to talk about some big bombshells that were dropped in the fourth episode. And if people want to fast forward through that, I'll give a spoiler warning, but yeah, this show has been great and unexpectedly great in some ways. Stephen King is not necessarily my, Bag of Tricks, but this idea of taking all of his different stories that have taken place either in Castle Rock or Derry or or any of the towns in Maine that a lot of his stories take place and kind of combining them together gives it sort of a Stranger Things kind of feel, that same nostalgic vibe, and that's just one aspect of it. But what I thought was really cool that I didn't realize until after I had started watching it is that it's intended as an anthology series a la... American horror story where each season is going to be in a completely different Stephen King style with overarching references to many of his novels. And this one you could say is kind of in the vein of say green mile a little bit this first season, but next season it might be more, you know, pet cemetery or it might be more the shining. You just never know what kind of level of horror and Supernatural, you're going to get season to season. And that really excites me. But the references that I'm talking about is what makes this first batch of episodes so great. Because right off the bat, we get characters with recognizable names, including Alan Pangborn, played by Scott Glenn, who's the sheriff of Castle Rock. In oh, He's the former sheriff in this show, but he was the sheriff in Stephen King's The Dark Half in Needful Things, which gets a lot of play, a lot of references in uh, Castle Rock and Jackie Torrance played by Jane Levy is named for Jack Torrance, the antagonist in the shining played famously by Jack Nicholson and even a brief mention in the fourth episode and this is not a spoiler to say this, but the character of Vincent Desjardins is mentioned and he's the bully from uh, the Stephen King story, the body, which was the basis for stand by me. So That's kind of cool. I mean, just right off the bat saying, Oh yeah, we know who Alan Pangborn is and integrating it into this new story. Really cool. And then it's not just the characters though. It's also the locations like Shawshank prison is very featured, very prominently, obviously from Shawshank redemption. We've got the mellow tiger bar and Nan's luncheonette gets a mention. Those of course were from needful things among other stories. We've get reference to the story of Cujo, just kind of newspaper articles that are, Uh, referenced at some point. And then if that weren't enough, you, I mentioned stranger things being kind of a same kind of feel by casting certain actors that you associate with this genre. And in this case, it's Bill Skarsgård who's wonderful as the nameless boy in this series. He of course was uh, made Stephen King famous by playing Pennywise from the, in the newest version of it. And then we see Sissy Spacek, who of course was well-known as the main character in Carrie. And then maybe less known is Melanie Linsky, who is playing Molly in this one. And she was in Rose Red. So you cast certain actors to evoke a certain amount of nostalgia. You get those locations in there, you get those characters in there. And what you end up with is this Stephen King feel, especially since it's very familiar to us. Those of us who have watched a lot of Stephen King material That the town has all of its past sins coming to the surface and it's got the childhood trauma driving the plot, which happens in a lot of Stephen King and even possibly a supernatural evil about to overtake this God fearing quaint New England town, which seems to be at the center of a lot of Stephen King stories. So. Right at the very beginning, we know that we're in a Stephen King story. Yeah, it's
2: you know very Nathaniel Hawthorne ish, and and certainly it takes place as you said in New England. And, and the location we we can't overlook the importance. I mean, looming in the background, three hundred years prior, to the Salem witch trials, and it's just it, it's the perfect place to tell this sort of a tale. And and you know the whole I, again, I love the whole past sins coming to the surface motif.
1: Yeah. And you do get the sense that the evil has been kept at bay by the actions that certain characters have chosen to take. And the main person who did just that is a character who doesn't stay on the screen for very long, but we love seeing Terry O'Quinn from lost. And here he plays Dale Lacey who goes to his last day at work at Shawshank prison And drives off a cliff in a very gruesome scene with a hangman's noose tied around his neck. And wow, if that wasn't kind of a shocker right off the bat, especially since he was just going off like it was any other day at work saying goodbye to his wife and all that. I mean, wow.
2: (laughs) Oh, right. And it's Terry O'Quinn. So we assume he's going to be a relatively large part of this series. But uh, nope, other than in some voiceovers to this point.
1: Right. And so we wonder why did he do that? And then we basically pick up with this private for profit prison sending in a new penny pinching warden to take Dale Lacey's place. And they have all this talk about double bunking to save money. And they're looking around to get a lay of the land. And officer Zaleski played by Noel Fisher offhandedly mentions that there's an empty wing that's been closed since a fire in 1987 and the warden's like, well, that, that's not going to do. 30 years? This thing has been closed? What are you talking about? And, of course, Zaleski then discovers the key to this uh, whole season, which is that there's a boy, a young man, who has been trapped down there. I guess he's not a boy anymore, but that's basically what they call him, the boy. He's been down there for 30 years, and the implications are that Lacey, Terry O'Quinn's character, kept him down there. And All we know is that he doesn't speak except to say the name Henry Matthew Deaver, which they initially think is his identity. But the people that are in the town know that Henry Deaver is a character who, although he left town, is very central to some of that evil that lurks in the town from, from many years ago. But it's really interesting that there's a sense that Dale Lacey did this, captured this kid, put him in the... Wing F, and imprisoned him there unfairly for a long time because of some evil that is incarnate in the child and now the young man.
2: Oh, and it's really frightening when we first find him when, when that when the one guard opens up the uh, what do you call that like the hatch? It's almost like a hatch from uh, Lost <laughs> yeah. and descends. Down that ladder and of course at first he he doesn't even want to go down there and then once he goes down there he finds the cage and oh it's just really really horrific.
1: Right and of course Henry Deaver is played by Andre Holland arguably the protagonist of the show he's definitely being brought in to discover what's going on here because he's left Castle Rock he's now a death row lawyer not a very good one but in Texas with family still in Castle Rock. And flashbacks show Henry as a young boy being discovered by Sheriff Alan Pangborn in the middle of a frozen lake after being missing for 11 days, but strangely has no frostbite and no signs that he was out in the elements and doesn't seem to have any memory of what even happened to him. And at the same time, Henry's adoptive father Who There's hints that he might have been an abusive guy, even though he was the local reverend, was injured during those same 11 days and actually died during that same time period. So here we've got this mysterious backstory as the now adult lawyer returns to find that the prison is denying that this person who asked for him even exists. He meets up with his mother, played by Sissy Spacek, his adoptive mother, because, of course, his mother and father are white and (laughs) Henry is black. But, you know, she's got some dementia and now she's living with Pangborn. And that creates a whole contentious dynamic as well. But really, the whole series ends up being a big puzzle box mystery as we try and figure out, as we did in Lost, actually, And that's what you can do in an an anthology series is get away with these puzzle box mysteries, because you know, we're going to get answers by the end of the season to questions like, why did Lacey kill himself when he had a six figure severance package? And why was he keeping the boy prisoner? And there's implications that Pangborn knew about this evil because he warns the new warden not to let the kid out to keep him hidden away, even though his existence has come to light. And what happened to Henry back in 1991. So all these things we assume because it's a self-contained story will get answers to. And that's what makes it so enticing, even though there's so many unanswered questions at this point.
2: Yeah. And the thing about Henry, you'd think, you know, here, here's a kid that leaves this town, which is clearly in decay. He apparently goes to college, becomes a lawyer, but as he returns to this town, we start to wonder, well, why is everybody so you know, negative towards him? It's almost as like, OK, what did he
1: do? Well, they all think that he killed his father and then tried to run off in those 11 days.
2: But even though, as he says, my father died at home. And of course, we see the scene actually how his father does die at home later on.
1: Right. Speaking of whom, (laughs) Molly Strand. Yeah, we get flashbacks from her perspective as well. She lived across the street, played by Melanie Lansky. And I love this character because she's got some kind of psychic abilities that really no one believes that she has. They think she's just kind of a crazy lady. In fact, she has to take Percocet to muffle her empathic response that's supposedly caused by these mirror neurons And her empathic response is particularly bad with Henry where she can actually feel everything that he feels. And I guess the implication is that when they were young, she knew exactly what was going on with Henry and his father and whatever abuse was going on. And she was the one that pulled the plug on him when he was trying to recover from his injuries and he was on a respirator. But that still doesn't explain how he got those injuries in the first place or where Henry was during that whole time. All we know is that she took advantage of the situation to get rid of someone in Henry's life that was causing him pain. Okay. And Mike, I'm sitting there watching her. Where do I know her from? Mm -hmm.
2: Two and a half men. Oh, (laughs) that's a strange thing to pull out. She was that wacky neighbor that was always after Charlie
1: Sheen's character. (laughs) I'm glad I don't know that reference. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, her character is trying to revitalize Castle Rock. She's a real estate agent. So she purchases an old yarn mill as part of this commercial revitalization project, even using $40,000 from her family home's equity against her sister's wishes and is getting ready to go on this local TV show to sort of promote her image. And it's all derailed because Henry comes back into town and she's back to her old empathic self where she uses her time on TV not to promote her own self, but rather to help Henry with his mission by basically calling the prison out on TV for keeping this boy imprisoned against his will. And so then they're kind of forced to let Henry in to see his client, so to speak. But I think what really is interesting is officer Zalewski played by Noel Fisher, who is just, very peripheral at first, but you see that this is a guy who is a moral character. He's very much the good cop surrounded by corrupt prison guards. And he's got a wife with a baby on the way, and he's very concerned about that. And he doesn't like what he sees. And so not only does he help Henry get to his client, but he also starts to be concerned and maybe use Henry's influence to become a whistleblower against what's going on in the prison But here's where I have to give a spoiler warning. You might want to fast forward a couple minutes because if you haven't seen episode four, there's a big reveal with regard to Zalewski and a very shocking ending to episode four in which Zalewski snaps in a very surprising way. And I think it's because I think he did a little fist bump with the boy and we saw that the boy and I don't know what else to call him. The nameless evil one. <laughs> we saw that touching him can be a bad idea because they tried to put him with a, a cellmate that was kind of a neo-Nazi guy. They were trying to sort of get rid of the problem by putting him in a cell with the worst possible character. But the, as soon as the guy touched him and he says, you don't want to touch me. The boy is able to somehow give this guy metastatic cancer that kills him instantly. so, This guy is akin to Damien from The Omen or something like that. The devil's child where he's got some real evil in him. And it's all just implied because he never comes right out and does anything bad. He just is who he is. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. The
2: show that keeps coming to mind is Outcast. I don't know if you're
1: familiar with that show or not. Not enough to know who you're talking about <laughs>
2: okay. well, just the the whole feel of the show and and, and the the character that has this kinds of power that's sort of unexplained at this point, but I mean the, the thing that really has captivated me about this character is the implication maybe inference is a better word. Is this the devil?
1: right, exactly you don't know what the extent is and how Dale Lacey was called to imprison him in the first place, because he implies that God gave him the mission in a flashback. So there's something to do with Pangborn. There's something to do with this Vincent Desjardins, who Henry goes to meet out in the woods and a very creepy scene in which there's some kind of barn or shed that clearly was being used to confine somebody or Maybe a young child, or maybe Henry himself as a young child. Who knows? I'm not sure how that's going to play out yet. But what's really eerie about those last scenes is that Henry flashes back in the fourth episode to his father in the woods following him, saying, Do you hear it now? And we don't know what he's talking about. But then later, when Henry finally meets with his client, the boy asks, Has it begun? And Henry doesn't know what he's talking about, so he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to refuse their deal. We're going to sue for civil damages, and you're going to own this whole town. But the boy's not interested in that. He just says, how many years old are you? (laughs) Which is a very strange phraseology. Henry tells him that he's 39 years old, and the boy says, do you hear it now? The same way that Henry's father did. And that's how the episode ends. So I'm dying (laughs) to get... To episode five, because I think we're right on the cusp of getting really deep into the action, not just because of that scene, but also because of the shocking thing that Officer uh, Zalewski does as well. So if you're up to date on Castle Rock, you know that things are about to heat up here at the halfway point. It is a slow burn. I mean, you can tell by the fact that things don't really get to that point until episode four. But I encourage you to stick with it. It's got that eerie feel, which requires this slow pace for Stephen King atmosphere to work. And you can definitely see that the other shoe is about to drop. And if you like Stephen King, if you like subtle horror that builds to a climax, then this is definitely the show for you. And I highly recommend it. I wasn't expecting to highly recommend it, but I've definitely been enjoying it a lot.
2: Cool. Yeah. I same here. Are we getting 10 episodes? Do you know?
1: 10 episodes. That's right. Okay. So yeah, like I said, the next next episode uh, next week is going to be the halfway point, And I definitely anticipate some answers starting to come into play, but even with the other topic that Dave mentioned, killjoys, we do still have a lot of mysteries because we're just starting that season. And our interview segment Hopes to kind of clear some of that up and maybe give us something to look forward to. Not in a spoilery way, but Luke was very forthcoming. And Luke McFarlane, of course, for those who don't know him, he first entered the TV limelight as Scotty Wandel on ABC's Brothers and Sisters. And then he was also featured in NBC's Night Shift and PBS's Mercy Street. But like a lot of Canadian actors we've spoken to, he also dabbles in a bit of uh, Hallmark Channel Christmas special action. <laughs> Which I know, Dave, you've indulged in a few times with some of our our interviewees.
2: Yes, absolutely. From the librarians. (laughs)
1: Exactly. But of course, sci-fi fans know him best as Davin Jacoby in Killjoys. And we caught up with him just before the season began to talk about the new direction for his character in this penultimate season for the series. Hi, Luke.
0: Hi.
1: I'm so happy you were able to talk to us today about Killjoys. That's great.
2: Thanks for your interest. (laughs) <laughs> well, we've definitely been enjoying this season so far, but we noticed that with all that's going on with Anil and Dutch, the focus has shifted away from Davin's ability to reject yep. the level six treatment in himself and in others. So is that ability still going to get some play in season four?
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, I remember very clearly the moment Davin kind of had these powers. I think it always became a bit of a, what are we going to do with it now? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing with television is you kind of open up these storylines and then you're like, well, oh, what do we do with this now? So there's there's a resolution of sorts so far as that manipulation of the green. And we kind of we arrive at a conclusion as to what we end up doing with that, which I think was a blessing because it always felt a little bit like we weren't ever the show that was going you to know, address it and we kind of didn't there was always a bit of a hanging chad so i really like the way the writers kind of ultimately ended
1: up deciding what to do with that okay so there's some closure for that in season four yes there is Mm -hmm. oh good (laughs) now uh, davin jokes a lot about him being the father of del child but do you think deep down he really does care about being a father i mean i can't help but think maybe his abilities might create some unique characteristics in an offspring.
0: <laughs> oh, certainly. I mean, I think there, there's one thing for her. I have no idea how it is she got my 23 chromosomes, and we don't really figure that out, but he is 100% my, my son. And I think it's a great thing for Davin's character. And in a lot of ways, season four is really about him being the father. And being responsible for somebody, which I think is, it's just made him a much fuller, rounder kind of guy. But we don't really know exactly quite the specifics as to why it was that I was, you know, had my sperm stolen from me. <laughs> yeah. But he's definitely a father, 100%.
2: Now, I really enjoyed the leadership dynamic Davin had in season three, but initially, at least in episode 402, we see him focused on getting himself and Johnny out of trouble. Will we get to see more of Davin taking charge this season?
0: Well, I think, insofar as what I was just talking about is being a dad, I think his leadership comes in the, the much more human scaled, paternal type of leadership. Um, but the world that we created is sort of lost, uh, as far as you know, armadas and ships and galleons, space vessels. So his leadership is daddy-focused.
1: Yeah, it's just scaled down a little bit.
0: <laughs> exactly, like our budget. <laughs>
1: exactly we now we often hear about characters sort of becoming more developed as writers become familiar with the actors that are portraying them mm-hmm. so that they can actually write to your abilities sure. so what do you think has been your biggest influence on the character of Davin or his dynamic with the others like how is that reflected from luke
0: well i think you know that, that's probably a better question for the writers because you know i i, I try not to watch myself too much because you don't want to get too self-conscious but you know, I know something that we explored earlier on was kind of having more of a sense of humor as he moved on, uh, being a little bit more able to laugh at himself or a little bit kind of goofier, um, which is definitely a loop quality. I think the, the original Gavin was I think, much more sort of focused and mean and mean and less, uh, less able to sort of laugh at himself. I also think there was like... A, Yeah, no, I guess humor is the really thing that kind of pops into my head. If I start rambling, I'll just start making stuff up. But (laughs) yeah, I think that that was was definitely part of it. And I know that one thing that you know was obviously in the script, but finding the sense of play between Aaron and I as brothers is something that I've always enjoyed, sort of exploring. And
2: yeah, okay. Uh, Now we got a little backstory about Dutch and Johnny in the premiere. And in earlier seasons, we got to see a little with Davin and his father. What else can we expect to learn about Davin this year?
0: Well, we definitely go back to uh, Davin's dad, and he he plays a he plays a role in this season. Oh, good. So we learn a little bit more about why it was that he why he left. I'm trying to remember the name of the his planet. Gosh, I should know this. Um, well, some some intrepid viewer will know it, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we definitely we go back uh, and and meet Dad and have a bit of a sort of uh, reunited. But I think as far as like the premiere episode, no, I I'm I'm Skyborn Syndicate at that point, so we don't learn anything about Dad Dad's military
1: experience. Yeah, that actually is something I would love to see more of uh, if we get a chance. But do you enjoy the subtlety? with which the writers treat the relationship that Davin has with Dutch and what would you wish to happen between them if you were a fan of the show?
0: It's, you know, it's a really hard question. And I have definitely like been frustrated at times and been like, what is the plan here? And I think for a myriad of reasons, it's very complicated. If I'm being totally honest. You know, there's, there's so many things that I think Taylor is really successful at and that it's partly challenging this sort of idea about what you know an action-adventure sh- show can be and like having a female lead and, and what it means to be a sort of man in that world and not wanting it to be a, like, who's she going to pick and not wanting it to be a love triangle and the fact that a man and a woman can be best friends and not lovers. So there's all these interesting things at play that I think sometimes always makes it a little bit challenging as the actor, being like, well, then what is... Dutch and Gavin, and as far as what I want, I, I always want to serve the story best. I've I've been sometimes I'm like you know maybe Dad should just like kill himself, and then <laughs> Dutch and John can get together, and they're like no 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 they're just friends. I'm like okay. So as far as like what I really want, I mean ultimately I want it to be best for the story, and I want Gavin to actually, and this is going to sound like a bit of a pop-out answer, but I really want him to be able to say what he wants from Dutch, because so far he's never really said what he wants from her either, which I think is part of the lack of maturity that both of them, frankly, as characters face. They don't really know how to ask somebody for help or for like, real, like, relationship affection, you know? It's all very compartmentalized. The friendship with Johnny is one thing. The sex with Gavin is another thing. And in a way, I think Gavin has a lot in common with Dutch in that regard. So I think, to try to sum it up, I I think what I want most for Gavin is to be able to say and articulate precisely to Dutch what it is he wants, which he's figuring out.
2: Now, you already mentioned the challenges of a tighter budget, and we already know that Killjoys is coming to a close next season. Mm -hmm. But while the writers might see that as an advantage for giving the story a proper ending, how has it changed the dynamic for you on set?
0: Well, one of the things that they did in order to sort of make the budget work is block shoot everything. So that means we shoot two episodes simultaneously, which is a challenge because you're constantly sort of going back between two scripts. So that's different. You know, you don't get the luxury of a chronology, which I think sometimes for an actor is really, really helpful. And, you know, like, I mean, it is so well-oiled. Like, we've always been very good about finishing on time, but now, like, there's absolutely... We will not be going over. (laughs) You guys have to finish the shot at this time because there's actually no money for overtime. So in a way, like, for a show to... Have to face those financial challenges in the last season when it's pretty dialed in is not such a bad thing.
1: Yeah, that's. A, I was hoping you would say that <laughs> because I think a lot of fans yeah. enjoy the ability to wrap up a story, so that's good. And I have one final question. Yeah,
0: and, and honestly, I would say too. And they always figure out a way to make it look really, really good. Like yeah.
1: honestly, yeah.
0: I'm not that. they always know where to spend the money.
1: Oh, no, I totally agree. (laughs) Um, Just one last question, though. Were you ever surprised by something you saw on the screen later when the show aired that was different from what you thought it would be when you were on the set?
0: That's a really good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, early on, I can remember just being sort of – I'm trying to think of something more relevant, but early on, I literally remember – They have this great opening shot of Old Town and Westerly, and the camera comes flying through outer space and through this sort of low atmosphere, and then down through the city. And there's an elevated train. And I remember thinking when we're down on the streets in Old Town, we'd be like, "Oh, there's an elevated train above us. I did not know that. Um, That's one example with the CGI stuff. (laughs) Another thing that I'm always really amazed at is I'm always really impressed with the quality of the makeup you know i wake up every morning and i see hannah go into processing she's obviously a beautiful woman but the hair and makeup department are constantly blowing my mind with the quality of the work that they do on the show and again because our budget's so small they just work their tails off and um you know all Anila's looks and and stuff uh they've just done an incredible job Oh well, definitely
1: and i agree well, uh, thanks very much. Uh, enjoyed talking to you about Killjoys today.
0: Thank you so much. Nice talking to you, Michael.
1: All right. And I think Luke was very good to sort of tease out not only some of the things that are in store for his character, but also just be very frank about his opinions of where his character should go and some of the frustrations he's had with the <laughs> Dutch and Davin dynamic. So that was kind of a, a very cool interview, and, and I definitely appreciate his honesty and basically talking about some of the challenges that came with this season four and season five, wrapping up the series and what he hopes to see as the series draws to a close. So we hope you enjoyed our interview segment with Luke and our show discussions and discussion topic today, but that's going to be it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity. You can keep the discussion going all month long by following us on social media We're on Facebook and Twitter as sci-fi fidelity.
2: And for September, we don't know what we're doing yet because there aren't enough new shows debuting in August, but we'll keep you guys posted. In the meantime, be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.
1: And we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to sci-fi at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.